It's a lot. 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 Like Anarchism is the attempt to eradicate domination. This includes not only such obvious forms as the nation-state, with its routine use of violence and the force of law, the corporation with its institutionalized irresponsibility, but also such internalized forms such as patriarchy, racism, and homophobia. Also, it is the attempt to expose the ways our philosophy, religion, economics, and other ideological constructions perform their primary function, which is to rationalize or naturalize, to make seem natural, the domination that pervades our way of life. The destruction of the natural world, or of an indigenous people, for example, comes not from the result of decisions actively made and actions pursued, but instead, so we convince ourselves, as manifestations of Darwinian selection, or God's will, or economic exigency. Beyond that, anarchism is the attempt to look even into those parts of our everyday lives we accept as givens, as part of the universe, to see how they, too, dominate us or facilitate our domination over others. Most fundamentally, I would see anarchism as a synonym for anti-authoritarianism. Hello and welcome, I'm Douglas Bowles and this is 42 Minutes, a weekly conversation with the interesting artists and thinkers of our day. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at Syncbook. Happy 4th of July! On this day in 1776, the Declaration of Independence was adopted by the Continental Congress declaring that the 13 American colonies regarded themselves as a new nation and no longer part of the British Empire. And the story of civilization continues. Thankfully today we can dig into this a bit with American anarchist and primitivist philosopher John Zerzan. He is the author of six major books which criticize agricultural civilization as inherently oppressive and advocate drawing upon the ways of life of hunter-gatherers as an inspiration for what a free society should look like. Some subjects of his criticism include domestication, language, symbolic thought, such as mathematics and art, and the concept of time. These books include Elements of Refusal, Future Primitive, Running on Emptiness, Against Civilization, Twilight of the Machines, and Why Hope, The Stand Against Civilization, many of which are published by Feral House. Educated at Stanford, San Francisco State, and USC, Zerzan was active in the movement of the 60s in San Francisco and Berkeley. In recent years, he's been a vocal participant in the contemporary anarchist resurgent and has been an invited speaker at both radical and conventional events on several continents. His weekly Anarchy Radio broadcast streams live on KWVA Radio from Eugene, and his past shows are archived at his website, johnzerzen.net. It really is an honor to be hosting him today. How are you doing, John? Real good. Thanks for the intro. You bet. So last week, I spoke with Xander Sherman about ironic alienation, which he noted in his essay about you is an inability to function as part of a destructive civilization. I wondered aloud whether this was becoming a normal stage of growing up. What do you think? I'm not so sure I get that term. I did have some really good conversations with Xander, and then there was that Believer piece much more recently. But what we're seeing, and, and you know, living in mass society at this stage of the game, 
is the absence of community and the complete invasion of technology in in so many ways. It's it's so invasive and and deforming and reforming of our very consciousness and perception. So that's I mean these are things that when you look at what accounts for the crisis we're in. I mean I was just thinking again and you could think about this every single day. For instance, the uh the woman in suburban Memphis a few days ago slashed the throats of four of her kids. This is the kind of uh, rampage killing uh, phenomenon that we're seeing all the time now. And uh, when when is it time to say what is society now? What is what do these things tell us about the nature of society, ironically or otherwise? I mean, it's just becoming uh, kind of unbearable, and yet it's really avoided in in so many many ways. So I think what he was getting at is the idea that ideology somehow is the operating system that allows one, an individual, to mindlessly be part of something that is so destructive. But then the thing that I was wondering about is that if the stakes, like you're mentioning, haven't gone up. Because if you can't function, like if you can't accept the destructive nature of civilization, then you act out and rebel against it. And I wonder if that isn't why we're seeing so much of this uh, mass-type shootings and things. Well, yeah, you have to identify your your enemy or your target in the first place, and that's what's uh, that's really at the heart of the problem. It seems to me, technology technology isn't political. It isn't problematized. It isn't presented as uh, as a as something to ponder. It's just assumed. It's absolutely assumed. You can't find anyone who doesn't. Uh, there, there are criticisms, but but the basic thing is just uh, it's just a natural business, and it's not. It's anything but natural. So it's time to start putting that under the microscope, and so many other things too. I mean, you know, if you want community, first thing is you wake up and decide. You notice there is no community anymore. Mass society has erased it. So people are cut off. They're they're adrift. They're you know, and then they uh, some of them end up uh, killing numbers of people. You know, th- these things are all connected, and and but it, you can't get to the heart of it if they're not, if it isn't allowed. In other words, that's where where do you read about that or hear about that or you know see it discussed on television or something? You just don't. Do you think you could have a community with technology, or do you think we? I mean, that it really do we need to start from scratch on some level. The latter. I think you can't coexist with it. It's, it's, you could change your attitude about it, but if you don't do something about it, then it doesn't matter what your attitudes are. It doesn't matter what mine are or yours are or anybody else's. If it, so long as it keeps advancing and taking over more and more of our lives and our society. And so basically we have what amounts to a mediated reality, that there's technology between us and reality and the only way to get back to reality would be to remove the mediation oh i think that's fundamental well put i mean that 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 really uh is is the basic thing as i see it and and then so the question becomes do you think this eradication of civilization is going to happen as a natural uh reaction to our just our lifestyle that this is something that the earth is just going to naturally make happen because we're so out of balance with nature? Well, I don't think there'll be a big change unless we want it, unless people, you know, come to the 
realization that there's no future in this and it's uh, all of these things are getting worse, frankly, you know, and so, but that might, that might happen. It might not happen. Who knows? I mean, was there people, you can always resort to drugs and, you know, like <laughs> people do right now, obviously, and other distractions, but I have the feeling this, this can't hold up forever, that it's really so unhealthy and alienating that people will uh, turn away from it at some point. Well, I wonder if, like, our extreme weather and these kind of things aren't indicating that that there'll be some sort of natural retribution for the imbalances that civilization is causing. Well, yes, I think you're quite right there. I mean, we see that. The, the uh, ecological disaster or catastrophe is happening now you know the yeah the extreme weather the all kinds of things you know the islands going under and the the contamination the pollution keeps increasing despite all the what's said about technology is going to solve everything you know it's yeah it's here it's it's uh, frighteningly here i don't know if that's the key thing or not i have the feeling it may be more the social, the interpersonal, you know, the subjective side of it, that you just become, it feels so empty and estranging that that, that trumps even the environmental uh, disaster area of it. Because, you know, inner nature and outer nature, they're both being savaged by the civilization at this point. Yeah, and so not long ago, I, I've, I found a book called Ishmael, which kind of said that, agriculture was the the fall of man like that was when we started agriculture do you do you agree with the notion like that or do you think that book is too simplistic on some level no i think it's i think it's quite good i think that was in fact quite a gateway drug if you will the daniel quinn ishmael uh-huh because it was about domestication the leavers and the takers as i remember and that's the fundamental thing. That's, I think that's the inner logic of what of what civilization is, the domesticating or controlling, dominating feature. It just keeps going forward. It keeps going forward in every way, GMOs and nanotechnology and total surveillance. It's all control, and it didn't used to be there. And But 10,000 years, almost 10,000 years ago, the move to farming – uh, the move to private property and and all that is, uh, you know, it's of a piece, and that's that's the uh, that's such a fundamental thing, which also, of course, is is one of the hidden things. It's not a political deal. Who talks about domestication? That's just uh, you know, it's a given. You just that's assumed. You can't. There can't be life without domestication. Of course, there was. Homo life for two million years before that. You know, people were cooking with fire two million years ago. I mean, you know, it's it's ridiculous to think that there that this is required when you look at the toll, uh, and not only the toll, but it's just not required. It's, it's simply not. Hmm. Well, so I mean, I I wonder. Like, it's hard for a brain that. De- deals in terms of like an authoritarian ideology as normal to consider a world without rules as it were well that's you know rules it's a i mean there were i think we get from from the literature from the ethnology and anthropology and so on that there were if you want to call them rules i mean they there were conscious decisions 
you know, hunter-gatherer life, uh, you know, foraging life, pre-domesticated life, whatever we call it, you see over and over a very conscious rejection of hierarchy and strategies to to repel that. I mean, that that really were successful in so many places for a very long time. You know, like mocking the person that comes back with the game. Oh, that's no good. I mean, there, there are all these great stories, you know. And so, so that person doesn't take on airs or authority or domination. They're they're brought down to the level of everybody else. I mean, they, there's. Uh, there's just a lot in the literature that, that's very, I think, inspiring. That, that it wasn't accidental that sharing is the cardinal uh, value, and there's no anthropologist that doesn't accept that. That's that's just a given, and you know, anthropology 101 tells you that. Hmm. Yeah, because I mean, as a parent, you need. I mean, it's it's hard because you need to train your children to behave a certain way to function in civilization. And so, like, I think about this in terms of, like, if you, people who want to train a dog to behave a certain way, it requires a lot of authoritarianism. You have to, I mean, you're training your dog. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the dilemma. We need to be successful in some way or another in, in this society, whatever our opinion of the society is. And so children, too, you know, you... You want them to be literate and so on, otherwise they don't have much of a chance in in the in the rat race in the in the social thing. So, yeah, you don't certain things we don't have too much of a choice over, really. So, and that's the question of technology too. By the way, people say, well, if you're such a luddite, why do you use it? How come you do a radio show with all this streaming and so forth and so on? You got a you got a website, you got an email. Well. I didn't want to have any of that, to tell you the truth, but how how do you contribute if you don't, you know, make use of the technology uh, where everyone's at? You know, I don't like it. It's it's certainly a dilemma or a contradiction, but, you know, it's easy to point out these things, and yet it, it's, not, it's not exactly free, is it? You know, that people used to say that. I remember this in the 80s when the personal computer revolution started, if you want to call it that, in the early 80s. And people would say to, to some of our writings and posters and stuff, well, if you don't want a PC, don't buy one. You know, quit quit to griping. But but then rapidly, it's not a choice. You know, you can't go to school without doing the technology and so forth. I mean, it's not it's not a free choice. I wonder what story the idea of story has to play within the uh, the notion of consciousness. Because I mean, story and. Story, myth, ideology, they're kind of of a piece. Do you think uh, the hunter-gatherers had some kind of story they needed, or did they just, were they without story as part of their, and I think this is all speculation, of course. Yeah, well, it is. I mean, we don't know, for example, the question of language. We don't know when speech began. There's absolutely no evidence. We know when writing began, you know, but, and you can look at, indigenous people now uh in fact well the, the traditional ones that some of us are trying to learn from the people that are still trying to hold out against uh so much of the modern ensemble and stories are very important to them and, and stories unlike ourselves which maybe we're writing and speaking all the time the the realm of stories is very carefully 
maintained. They, there are certain stories that only are possible at certain times of the year. You know, in other words, it's a, it's not just a loose, open thing where you're yakking all the time about everything, but of course they, they're conversing about everything else too. But I mean, in terms of story, like you mentioned, I think that has a, that has a role that's very, very central in maintaining and trying to maintain their, their traditions, their life ways against all odds. You can still see that now, you know, and they're not really allowed to be hunter gatherers anymore, but they're much, much closer to that than we are. And within that realm, I'm guessing that there's a sense of real community and that real community provides a level of meaning that it seems like our society is lacking. Well, right, uh, insofar as it exists. I mean, of course, the story of the, the picture of reservations is, is one of devastation and and drug use and alcohol. We know all that, but I mean, this is a link, I think, to the to the actual community. And I think, I believe it's fair to say that if you don't have face-to-face, you really don't have community. You have some kind of fake version that we're supposed to swallow, you know, even as even as much as it's completely, uh, re- you know, it shows that it's not true. In other words, for example, technology says we're all connected now. Technology, well, actually, we're more isolated than ever. Every more and more so. It's completely false to say that we're all connected now. We're not. You can we're we're skyping here, and obviously that's a form of communication or connection. Certainly, it is. But I mean, in terms of social bonds and how many friends you have and what, whether there's real community somewhere, you know, that's what's destroyed it in, in a very fundamental way. And it's, it's, to me, it's just shocking that the, the lies that they pump out, we're all connected, we're all empowered, all this, you know, on and on. You just, you see these ads, you know, the barrage of this stuff, and it's just manifestly not true. Why else would there, why is society crumbling, in effect, the more technological it becomes? It's easy to point these things out. It's it's rather easy to shred these ideological formations that are that are just so many lies. And yet, you know, well, I'm rambling here, so I'll just <laughs> I won't interrupt anymore. <laughs> well, then I wonder where do we where do we find hope? I mean, so if a virtual community isn't a real community, I mean, what what is what is the answer to? Uh to the the feeling of meaninglessness. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> you got me there. And I'm often mocked at being such a foolish optimist because I really kind of am. I mean, I don't think this thing can hold up uh, terribly much longer. Probably, you know, that's my guess. So, but people just say, well, that's, you know, where does this guy get off? He acts like it's, uh, we're riding high, but we're certainly not. I guess I guess what I see as hope is that it's possible to come to these conclusions without all that much effort. And I think more people are coming to these conclusions on some level or another, even though it's really not very much allowed to articulate these things. You you won't be on a, you won't be doing a TED talk or talking with Charlie Rose or whoever. And yet there it is. The reality is is trumping the lies. You know, it's and so You've got to have something to hold up the society, to hold it together, and well, or to put it another way, do you do you think the dominant order has any answers left? I don't see it having any answers. It's 
it's struggling. You know, it's almost abandoned political ideology in favor of the voice of technology, I would say, to put it maybe crudely. But, you know, I don't see a system that's very strong anymore. It's just it's eroded. People have no trust in institutions, and this is kind of spreading and deepening, I think. People aren't happy, you know. But no idea what will happen. I'm not predicting, oh, we're going to have this glorious future where people just throw all that out and, and get together and, you know, tra-la-la in the woods or something. I'm not saying that. Yeah, I mean, I think earlier you had mentioned that we we might be abandoning ideology, and I it seems like we're in a strange moment where where we're we're letting go of um it's it's almost like we're agreeing to be isolated in some kind of i mean it's comforting to to whatever trump represents in the brexit and all this kind of stuff that's happening do you have any thoughts on that well, I was thinking about just just um, a couple of days ago, 15 years ago, the anti-globalization movement was very strong, summer of 2001. You know what started in Seattle, basically, the big WTO riots for a couple of days up there, end of 99? Yeah. Quebec City, Prague, Genoa, Genoa in July 2001, 300,000 people in the streets, burning banks, throwing computers out the windows. One young anarchist was shot in the face and killed. It was it was amazing. And yet the problem, I mean, that was great energy and, and hopefulness there, but it wasn't really anti-globalization very much. Some of us were. But, you know, with the typical question to the protester, the media, the media guy shoves the microphone in the face of a protester and says, so how, how come you guys are against globalization? Well, the answer almost always was, we're not against globalization. We're against corporate globalization. We want the nice, bottom-up, uh, from the bottom-up kind of grassroots thing. Well, that's that's a point of view, but it's not anti-globalization. You know, you have to accept globalization. You have to accept the constant higher level of integration into the world system, which is happening every hour, or not. And if you don't, then... What starts to be unraveled is the whole damn thing. Well, that means you don't like capitalism, you don't like mass society, you don't like industrialism, you don't like civilization, domestication. Well, that's right. <laughs> that's definitely where I'm at. It's all, you know, one thing leads to another, as it has in my thinking over the years. You know, you, you tackle one thing and see how it's deeply related to the other thing. And so, yeah, then you get to this primitivist point of view, at least I did. So, I mean... I'm not saying everybody swallows that, certainly not, but, you know, it's, it's, there's a logic to it. It's a consistency, a cogency, I would say, to it. So now, the next, the next time this comes around, maybe it will actually be anti-globalization. What you see with Brexit and Trump is a kind of phony anti-globalization, a kind of nationalist, uh, isolationist thing. Well, that doesn't work in the modern world. That just doesn't work. There's no way to do that. We're way past the the time you could do that. Way past that time. So they're just they're selling this bogus uh, reaction or, or resistance or opposition, but it doesn't go anywhere. You can't you can't get away with that. The, you know the the stock market in New Zealand sneezes, and there's a world crisis, and, and, and the financial 
level, right? I mean, it's it's so tied together that uh, there's no there's no opting out of it, unless you want to unless you want to challenge the whole damn thing. And certainly, Trump has no intention of that, nor do these other you know nativist types who who want to make a protest. Well, protest all you like, but you're missing the whole point. You're missing what is is humiliating you and impoverishing you. You don't even want to see how it actually works. My impression is, because I know people who, they don't want to feel out of control. And if there's a strong figure that says, I've got this, you know, I can, I can navigate this new landscape and make you, it's almost like going, I can take you back to when you felt safe. Sure, exactly. I think that's a very articulate way to put it. Yeah. We want the big figure to come in and and make sense of it and correct everything, and then we can relax. You know, yeah, that's constant uh, draw toward that. I mean, there's any number of ways to identify with the dominant order and and feel solidarity with that and feel and feel strengthened by it, even though it's a false way to get that. But yeah, sure, that's a big appeal. But then I think a figure like Trump, it, it could go someplace really dark really easily because it's it's easy to say, okay, we're the good guys, and therefore these are the bad guys, and we'll feel safer if we do X to the bad guys. Right, right, sure. First, we're frustrated. We're all frustrated. You know, it's uh, you want to lash out. Uh, you might, maybe you lash out at Muslims or, you know, Black people, we've seen it over and over through the centuries. Jews, you you know, whatever. I mean, it's, that's the bogus way to tackle the real problem. Yeah. But it's it's not anything new. All right, so then speculate a bit. Where do you think we're going to end up next fall? Do you have any sense of that? Well, next fall, I, well, for one thing, I, I don't think uh, Trump has a chance of being elected, even against somebody as terribly flawed as, as Clinton, for God's sake. Yeah, that's... It's it's a Tea Party kind of frustration. It's a, it's a protest that's more loud than usual, perhaps. But it's there's. I don't think most people are are going that way at all. I could be wrong. I don't. I'm not that into electoral politics at all. I don't vote, obviously, as an anarchist. So, but I just think that's this thing has been somewhat overblown, and uh, now, I, and as I understand it, the thing is already falling apart. The, the very candidacy uh, in terms of the usual stuff you're supposed to do and how you do it i mean it well, that's just my guess i don't think it i don't think it actually matters all that much i don't think it would be he would probably be pretty incompetent but i doubt if there, things would change all that much for various reasons even if he were elected hmm yeah that's well that's interesting i think i don't know it, it feels like the whole thing is coming apart anyway because like you said clinton is so flawed these two choices are not very good choices. No, and neither are the splinter things. You could vote green, or you could vote what libertarian or something. But that—that's just a game that's set up for us to play. I mean, that's that's not what changes things. You know, it's you got to get over that and grow up. And there's got to be resistance, and that's not resistance. That's just playing along with the, you know, in the sandbox that they give you to play in. It doesn't change anything. An interesting community that formed online is this, it's kind of a resistance community too, but I wonder, the, the conspiracy communities, are you familiar with those and what do you make of those? i got to admit, I'm, I'm just terribly frustrated with that. Once again, it's not a big surprise, but it always seems to me a, a way of avoiding 
more important things, you know. And I always think, well, okay, let's just say you're right about whatever it is, who killed Kennedy or anything you want to talk about. What difference does it make? What difference does it make in terms of daily life, in terms of the way all these fundamental institutions work? It wouldn't make any difference. So, I mean, on that level alone, it's kind of silly. It's it's just, it seems like it's so often, uh, and it's easier to go off into that. Then you can get into all these so-called details of everything and endless reports. And, you know, it's, yeah, Big Pharma, are they purposely poisoning all the kids, giving everybody autism through vaccination? I mean, come on, that some of this is so... Or AIDS was a plot to kill all gay people, you know, and then, and they just move from one to the other. It's, you know, they get tired of one, it's kind of nonsense, and so they pick up another one, and you can always go into that, you know, I, I just don't have much uh, respect for it, frankly. Mm-hmm. What about local politics, then? Is that something that's worthwhile? Well, not to me. It's more representation. Uh, you know, I'm here in Eugene, Oregon, for example. <laughs> you know, we got the nice liberal green woman mayor, uh-huh. and she's just been she just uh, finished her terms, to and she's re- now replaced by another nice green liberal woman mayor, and nothing changes. It's the same. Uh, you know, let's see, when was it? Oh, about 15 years ago, there was a mayor called Jim Tory. Fat Republican developer type, <laughs> kind of the opposite image, right? Yeah. Well, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed except a little bit of rhetoric. It's just such a racket on any level. I mean, it's just, I'm not saying it's precisely that way everywhere, but it's a joke. You know, people want to hear these comforting words. There's more development and tax giveaways than there was even with when the Rare times that a Republican was mayor, and this is a liberal college town, right? I mean, you don't have you don't have right wingers in office, but what difference would it make if you did? If it's just a lot of glib, uh, sustainable, sustainable, green, 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 and and nothing really is any different. I mean, it's a joke. Well, there are those that really think that it's the economic structure at the root of everything that's causing the, the problems of civilization. Do you think? Do you think um, with a different economic system? I mean, I, probably the answer is no. I mean, it's not the economic system. It's actually civilization that's the problem. Well, it's both. I mean, it's, that's part of, of the civilizational thing. You know, it's all, it's certainly, it's capitalism. You know, I mean, uh, sometimes I, I'm surprised that more people don't say in terms of the anarcho-primitivist or green anarchy rap, our point of view, our uh analyses and so forth more people don't say how come you never talk about capitalism i think it's because they understand well that's a given i mean yeah that's part of the problem it's not the most fundamental thing because it started before capitalism it started with domestication that's the origin of private property for example that marxists don't seem to go back far enough but yeah certainly it's economics as well oh yeah it's just, it's so bleak. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, it's getting worse by the minute. I mean, it's just amazing how it's just startling and shocking. And I've been, you know, I've been studying the kind of minutia, or not necessarily minutia, but the all of these different things that show up in societies. Like, I remember writing about kids burning down their school in the 1970s. Well, so this is not, none of this is new, but it's just the scale of it. 
I think, and the some some of these things are just now unprecedented, and not only the eco crisis, but the social stuff. You know, again, the shootings, and and you could look at the suicide rates, the 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 number of people ODing from drugs has tripled in the last three years. I mean, that's just a big sign of something, and yet people just go on. They 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 report the news, but they don't think about what it means. Where the hell are we at here? Are we going to just keep going over the cliff with this whole system? Well, that's kind of where I started. Where So as a child, you're indoctrinated with the belief system of your parents. But then somewhere you know, when, in your puberty years and a little older, you start to rebel against your parents and challenge that belief system. And I think there's this period of time when you're without an ideology, as it were. Well, let me just put in here, I have been fantastically lucky. You know, I'm really fortunate. When I graduated from Stanford, I moved to Haight-Ashbury, okay, in 1966. And before that, we used to go up because Stanford is a quiet, stale place and pretty conservative place. We'd go up for the riots in Berkeley most weekends, okay? And then, so I was at the right, a right place at a right time in history. Fantastic. And I've never forgotten it. It made a big mark on me, and it still does. You know, all these many years away from that, I could see, I could, I to feel what it's like when things really start to shift, and they did all over the world for a little while. You know, it was amazing. That's something that, uh, you know, if you didn't go through that, you, it's much more easy to, you know, you can't imagine it really. I guess. I mean, you can, you have a much more. I suppose pessimistic, and a lot of my friends actually grew up in the 80s. You know, some of the anarchist people here, for example, 80s? That wasn't the 60s. That was, you know, Reagan and Thatcher and, you know, terrible music and the whole thing. You know, it was awful. I mean, no wonder they feel bleak and, you know, hopeless. I didn't grow up in the 80s. I, I came of age in the 60s, and it was fucking exciting. What about the kids now? I mean, I so you talked about... The battle in Seattle, and I mean that was that was the end of the nineties. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was great. But but do, do you feel like the millennials have any kind of is is it are we living in a surface world now? I mean, it's all just like we said, mediated, and so there's no there's no substance. Well, it has had a definite impact on anarchist stuff. I can tell you, and a number of people have pointed this out. It's much more easy to be online. Uh, you know, than to be in be outside in the streets or whatever it is you you know we want to do away from the screen. You know, it's had a it's had a very bad effect. But you know, that's not guaranteed that people will not become bored with that and want some actual authentic experience or more authentic experience. I would put it. This could be the lull before the storm. Not much has happened in the last fifteen years. More and more technology. I mean, it's related, those two things, as I just said, I think. But anyway, who knows? It could be, maybe we're time. Maybe we're due for another big uh, out outpouring of stuff. Uh, that, you know, there are things that are going on, like the hundreds of people that showed up in uh, in Sacramento one week ago to bloody and, and chase away the Nazis that showed up. That was quite a show of uh, radical energy, I, I would think. They weren't just staying home look, looking at the computers. They went out there and kicked their ass. 
it seems like I was explaining to someone with with the, this election cycle, Trump was kind of a step backwards. Clinton is kind of status quo, and Bernie was this the idea of something new. And so it seemed like he had a lot of support. I think you're probably right that people want some kind of change. Well, I mean, yeah, I guess if I was a voter, I'd vote for, I would have voted for Sanders. But, you know, it's also true that it seemed to me nobody really wanted to look at the details, right? I mean, exactly what he's proposing. I mean, it wasn't all that much, but but you got this good feeling. I think a lot of people got this good feeling just for him railing against Wall Street. Yeah. And the huge gap between the haves and the have-nots, all that's true, you know. And so he gives a fiery speech, and that's good enough. You know, never mind uh, how's this going to work. And, you know, it's really maybe not that much to it, but, but the appeal was certainly there. I think it was more of a gesture than anything, and and people were ready for that. You know, it's better than... Better than the other two by quite a ways, I suppose. So that reminds me of I mean, Occupy was a pretty interesting historical moment. Was that an effective movement or did, I mean, is it just our structure is so <laughs> so great that you just, I don't know. I don't know. That's a good question. I mean, I didn't. I don't think it went anywhere. It was just a flop, just a liberal bunch of stuff that was kind of meaningless. I'll tell you one thing: the, lots of anarchists were initially interested, hopeful, and nobody, no anarchists were involved, as far as I know. Really, that's that's an overstatement, okay? But nobody saw anything much radical there. There, with with one or two exceptions, I think. But uh, I don't know why that never got off the ground. Some of us were hoping that the first step might have been deoccupying. We're living on occupied land. Let's let's wise up to the dimension of that, you know, the the indigenous dimension and go and change it to deoccupy or decolonize. Well, that didn't happen. Hmm. People just uh, implicitly or otherwise, explicitly in some cases, decided to just stick with the left. We're going to have another boring leftist thing and it'll peter out. It, it really went nowhere. That could have been a turning point. I don't. I don't know if it would have been, but at least it would have been a start. Then you're you're oriented in a very different way. Maybe you're questioning much more than just uh, whatever it was they were. They were talking about greed and all that. It just wasn't very deep uh, analysis, and uh, you know, it just faded out. So, so then, what are you working on these days? Well, actually, I'm I'm working on a book called uh, A People's History of Civilization. And I, I know it won't be nearly as successful as Howard Zinn's uh, A People's History of, of the U.S., but uh, over the years I've written various essays, and I just take a look at all of the ones that are pretty strictly historical, and they kind of put end-to-end or, or sort of a narrative of civilization in the West. So I'm putting that together to uh, with Alice's uh, uh, essential help making a, a general starting with agriculture and, and going on up to uh, today in the West. It doesn't tackle Chinese civilization or, or other ones that have come and gone. So that's, I'm kind of excited about that. I'm hoping it might come out next year. My current book, uh, as you know, as you mentioned, actually, Why Hope, been out for several months now. And, uh, you know, the other thing, I, and 
I hope you'll let me make a plug here. Sure. I'm one of the editors. Thanks. I'm, I'm one of the editors of Black and Green Review, and we just put out issue number three, 216 pages, and uh, I'm real excited about that. We've got uh, six or seven editors, and uh, so we're trying to. Okay, we're griping about all this stuff, putting down the left and, and everything else. So what do we got? What do, what do we have to offer? So this is what we're trying to do. Give our orientation, our uh, analyses and uh, stuff and see. And I think with issue number three, we're, we're starting to get a, a very good response. I don't, I don't know the details, but uh, it's kind of catching on a bit. I hope it's going to keep on growing. It's easy to find. Just go to uh, Black and Green Review or Black and Green Review Press. Okay. Uh, I mean, so I guess that's why I was so interested in talking to you is I don't, I don't know. I mean, what does an anarchist society look like? I have so many friends that say they're anarchists, but I mean, for you, what does an anarchist world look like? Well, in my opinion, it would be face-to-face -face, uh, society, would be a radically decentralized process to get there to where that's that's where community is, face-to-face, -face, and that's what uh, has been swallowed up by mass society. And so it's going in that direction to where, as it was with banned society, people are accountable, they, they are responsible, and the survival of the group depends on it. I mean, so you do have a stake in it. You're not just cut off adrift in this uh, faceless world and you might end up flipping out and doing horrible things. But but getting back to some place like that, not that it's some kind of blueprint that we're going to be exactly like some group in some prehistory, but, but uh, along those lines, I think that's what it would have to be. Just break down, break all this stuff down past the local level, even to... You know, society at one point was, was 60 or 80 people. That was it. You know, you didn't worry about, you didn't even worry about is the earth round or flat. <laughs> A lot of these things have no bearing. You know, you've got, you're occupied with, with that society. You, and it's for real. And work out the problems that arise, you know, being against hierarchy and domination and, you know, undo all these things that have, They've come to pass for a reason, starting, for example, patriarchy, the objectification of women. You know, we, you didn't see these things before domestication. Go down the list, work, we're working ourselves to death. Actually, with, you know, somewhat recent, recent discovery about how few hours people worked way back when and, and so forth. Didn't destroy the environment, looked pretty good. And it endured for, you know, thousands of generations, so... We can draw on that as we try to get somewhere now. Can you speculate, or do you know why we went down that path to where we are now? One thing I'd say, one thing is kind of hidden, you know, because you could say, well, if domestication was so evil and such a bad deal, how come people did it? How come people switched over? Well, there was quite a big battle. Stanley Diamond, I think, uh, in his book, uh, uh, I can't think of the name of it now, but he he referred to it as as this almost titanic battle. It didn't they didn't go, generally speaking, did not go calmly into oh this looks like a good idea let's be farmers, let's give up our freedom and and start, you know, putting up fences and so forth. I mean it, it was not 
it was not a given that that was going to happen. So the the forager people, the hunter gatherer people, lost obviously, but you know it was quite a struggle. Well, that was forty two minutes. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Thank you, Doug. Appreciate it talking to you. You've been listening to John Zerzen on Forty Two Minutes, a production of the Sync Book. Radio and thesyncbook.com. Check out his books and website at johnzerzin.net for more information about the Syncbook. Our guest to check out past shows or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes. Please be sure and visit our website at thesyncbook.com. If you like this podcast and would like more, consider becoming a Syncbook Plus member. Some of the membership benefits include full access to the complete audio archive, discounts on books, behind the screens, behind the scenes scripts, bonus audio and video, as well monthly online hangouts with the host. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com slash membership. Thanks so much. And if we once and for so long lived in balance with nature and each other, we should be able to do it again. You don't own me. But I'm Gerald, and I can always have just what I want She's the baddest, I would love to flaunt Take her shopping, you know Eve Saint Laurent But nope, nope, she ain't with it though All because she got her own though Boss, boss, if you don't know She could never ever be a broke You don't own me I'm not just one of your many toys You don't own me Don't say I can't go with the boy She said, no, what? well, goddamn, Damn. she said, come over and see it for yourself Never asking for your help, independent woman, she ain't for the shelf No, nah. she's the one, smoke with her until the <laughs> Stand up until we see the sun, the baddest ever Swear she do it better than I ever seen it done yeah. Never borrow, she ain't never alone It's when she told me she ain't never, ever, ever, ever gonna be on
Never met somebody like me before though.